Well, I would like to pray. I know that uh, Michael prayed for me, but I'd like to pray. So let's just uh, bow our heads and just come and, and bring, our, bring our attention once again uh, to the Lord and to his presence. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. We, we thank you, Father, for, for Jesus. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his ministry. We thank you for his words, his teaching. We thank you for his rhythms and his ways and how he invites us in. We thank you, Holy Spirit. <clears throat> we thank you for the way that you move in our midst and the way that you communicate Jesus to us. And we just pray this morning that as we, we look at a small piece of the teachings of Jesus, that you would enlighten into us a greater revelation of your heart, the heart of the Father, the heart of the Son, the heart of the Spirit, that you would enlighten to us the heart of the lover, the heart of the beloved, and the heart of the flame of love. So, Lord, as we look at this concept of family on mission, we just, we embrace you. We embrace all that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I actually am pinch hitting for Joel this morning. He was, uh, had signed up. I guess there was some preaching calendar, and then he realized that he was going to be in Florida. And so uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't have the, the ponytail that I'm working on in the back. I don't know if that's possible for me, but, you know. Uh, but uh, I am, I'm just glad to be up here in front of you guys. And um, in the text message this, uh, this week that he sent asking me to preach, he said, uh, you know, the, the message that we're going to look like, uh, family on mission, this idea of family on mission, which is our theme for the next few weeks, he said, uh, he said to me, so... Really, all you need to do is just talk a little bit about the text and then tell some of your stories. And I thought to myself, well, I love to tell the stories, but we're also going to look at the text that's in front of us. So I want to actually open by uh, sharing uh, a, something that uh, Tony Campolo wrote. I don't know if you guys know Tony Campolo ever, or ever heard of him. He, really formative in my life and, and the things that, and the way I even like see the world, see the loss, see issues of poverty and tensions and struggle. But in a book that uh, he wrote called The Kingdom of God is a Party, like if you don't like that title, I don't know what to tell you, but The Kingdom of God is a Party. So Tony Campolo tells the story of a trip he took to Hawaii. One night in the middle of the night, uh, Tony couldn't sleep and was hungry. At 3.30 in the morning, he found the only place that was open. And as he was sitting at the counter eating his donut and drinking coffee, a group of women who made their living off the street came in. I've changed some of the words here, just not knowing exactly what the audience uh, is, but you can put whatever you want in that phrase. Uh, Tony said that he overheard their conversation, and one of the women's uh, women named Agnes blurted out, Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. And her friend responded in a nasty tone, So what do you want from me? A birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday to you? Come on, said Agnes. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? When Tony Campolo heard that, he made a decision. He asked the owner of the restaurant, do they come in here every night? Yeah, the owner answered. I heard the one named Agnes say that tomorrow is her birthday. Campolo told him. What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? The owner answered with measured delight. That's great. I like it. That's a great idea. Calling to his wife who did the cooking in the back room, he shouted, Hey, come out here. This guy got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday. This guy wants us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for Agnes. Right here, right in our restaurant tomorrow night. 
His wife came out of the back room and brightly, uh, all bright and smiling. And she said, that's wonderful. You know, Agnes is one of those people who's really nice and kind. And nobody does anything nice and kind for Agnes. And so Tony Campolo, the restaurant owner, and his wife planned a birthday party for Agnes. They made her a cake, and they decorated the restaurant, and they got the word out on the streets. At 3.30 the next morning, on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friends. And when they all came in, they all screamed, Happy birthday, Agnes! Agnes's mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter, everyone sang, Happy birthday, Agnes. The birthday cake was brought out, and Agnes began to cry. The birthday cake was so beautiful, and Agnes couldn't take her eyes off of it. Never in her life of 39 years had she ever had anything like it. Her next response was completely unexpected to everyone present. She asked if she could actually take the cake home with her for a little while. You see, she had never received anything so beautiful, anything so amazing, anything. She had never received anything. Now, no one really knew how to respond to that question, but they said yes. Agnes, we don't need to cut the cake right now. And then Agnes picked up the cake, and with tears streaming down her face, she ran out of the restaurant. Everyone just stood there, motionless, as Agnes left with her cake. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, Tony Campola broke the silence by saying, Well, why don't we pray? Uh, and then I'll share with, in Tony's own words. Looking back on it now, it seemed more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. And so I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would change and that God would be good to her. When I finished, the restaurant owner leaned over the counter when the trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of a church do you belong to? And in one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for women of the street at 3.30 in the morning. The owner waited a moment and then almost sneered as he answered, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Well, that's the type of church that Jesus came to create. And I really bring that before because I know that got the gospel tab, actually, you guys have your own stories like that. I know that uh, Meryl and I, we, we, we come from... Uh, uh, Baltimore and then and then Raleigh, North Carolina, and we have stories like that. But it's just a reminder of the mission of God. This idea of what is God doing in the world today? He's actually reaching into the hearts of those who are hurting. Uh, last night, my uh, wife and I, we watched uh, episode eight of season one of The Chosen, and that was the one where uh, he was in a party where Matthew, the tax collector, had thrown for Jesus. And and he says in that the, is his famous, famous words. That I haven't come for the well. I've actually come for the sick. I've come for those who are hurting, for those who are struggling. Um, our scripture passage is Luke 14, 1 through 14. I don't know if any of you can, uh, uh, if you have the ability to watch movies like that and not cry. I don't. And uh, for some reason, even as I'm thinking about having watched the movie last night, uh, I'm, I'm a little teary-eyed. But we have uh, in front of us um, our passage of scripture. And uh, the context of this is that there is a prominent Pharisee. We don't know who that Pharisee is, but there's a prominent Pharisee. 
And uh, he invited uh, Jesus to come to his house to eat with him. So let's, uh, let's read uh, this passage. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So this is, uh, I believe, the second in a series of sermons uh, that we're going through here at the Gospel Tab, uh, both um, this campus, the Crestmont campus, as well as uh, the Franklin Avenue campus. And uh, the, the topic is Family on Mission. We are, I, I believe we have a, a slide for this, we are a Christ-centered, spirit-empowered family on mission. We exist for our neighborhoods and the nations, and our prayer is that we would welcome the people nobody else wants. We are Christ-centered. We don't make Christ the center. The Father already has. We are spirit-empowered. We unapologetically seek his power to join him in his work. And we are a family on mission. The Father has adopted for himself a family made of every ethnic group and language. Our family is not defined by natural bloodlines, social class, culture, affinity, or political tribalism. We are a family defined by Jesus. Our love and com commitment for one another is forged in the crucible of mission. We are a sent family, one that goes and grows. There is room at this family's table for even more daughters and sons. And we welcome to our family, even those that nobody else wants. What we want to do this morning is we want to grab that last couple of phrases in Family on Mission. This idea that we are a sent family, one that goes and grows, and there is room at this family's table for even more daughters and sons. And we welcome to our family even those nobody else wants. Christ-centered is our identity. Our identity as a church is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We obey him. We listen to him. We serve him. We worship him. He's at the center of all that we are and all that we do. And we are also are spirit-empowered. Spirit-empowered is how we do what we do. It's our enablement. It's, it's, the, it's the impetus behind us. It's, uh, it's the wind in our sails. It's the gasoline in our engine. It's the electrical current that runs through our mission. And then family on mission is what we do. It's our purpose. And our purpose is to continually find people to invite into God's continually expanding family. And so this morning, we want to look at, especially at uh, the verses 12 and 14, and allow it to expand our understanding of, of family, and allow it to understand, uh, um, 
uh, allow it to expand our uh, understanding of our mission as family. That we welcome to our family, even those that nobody else wants. So before we look at Luke 14 now, I want to I uh, take, uh, and we go into some practical aspects. I actually want to, if I can have your permission, I just want to kind of develop a little bit of theology for us this morning. Is that okay? Can I, can I do that? Okay. Thank you. I figured it would be good. This is a CMA church, so I knew that that would be good, but just wanted to uh, get your permission to do that. You see, Genesis begins in the beginning, but even before there was a beginning, there was a family. There actually was a father and a son, and there was love. Intimate relationship of identity, purpose, love, and affection. There was a father, there was a son, and there was the Holy Spirit in perfect unity of identity, purpose, love, and affection. Um, we, uh, we were down in Raleigh, North Carolina for the last two years, and the senior pastor down there is a man by the name of Duncan Smith, and uh, he actually had this um, amazing revelation that came out of um, this, really the Song of Solomon. A lot of times we look at the Song of Solomon, we have two main ways that we interpret it. We interpret the Song of Solomon as the, um, a relationship between a husband and wife. Another way that we look at it is metaphorically as a relationship between Christ and his church. But he also saw in the Song of Solomon a beautiful picture of the triune God. And at the very end of the Song of Solomon, you have the, well, he, um, Solomon develops this concept of the lover, the beloved. But at the very end of the Song of Solomon, you have this, this idea of the actual flame of love itself. And so Duncan Smith says that the family was the lover perfect in his love, the beloved also perfect in his love, and both not just perfect in their love, but also perfect in their reception of love. They gave love perfectly, they received love perfectly. And then as Duncan points out from this, this Song of Solomon, there was also the perfect flame of love, love himself, the Holy Spirit perfect family and out of the perfection of their love and out of the perfection of their family and out of the perfection of their purpose they created there are not many places in scripture that give us a picture of the perfect purpose of God in creation but we do find in Ephesians that the Holy Spirit allows the Apostle Paul to pull back the veil a little bit and and allow us to see some of what was happening even before the foundation of time and creation. Paul writes these words in Ephesians 3.6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, before the in the beginning, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Now that, that kind of, if, you, uh, if you understand uh, Ephesians chapter 1, you see that Ephesians chapter 1 is one big long run-on sentence. And there's a phrase there, and this phrase is in love, and it's hard to know whether in love goes with what came before or love goes with what comes after. And I wonder if Paul didn't put it there because it's what comes before and what comes after. That he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And then also in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, which he had blessed us in the beloved. From before the in the beginning of Genesis, it was in the heart of the Father to adopt sons and daughters into his family. He created us to love us. He created us to be loved by him. And he created us to become part of his family. There's a word in this, in the, uh, Ephesians chapter uh, 3, uh, verse 5 as well. It's this word for the purpose, the, according to the purpose of his will. 
That word is the word thalema in the Greek. Thalema is the mission of God to bless all of mankind through his beloved son. The idea of the will of God, the purposes of God, is God on mission. It's actually God's mission, his will, his purpose, what he has set out to do in Christ to bless all families of the earth. Before the very beginning of time, God set out to bring sons and daughters into his family through the beloved God the Son. John 1.12 says this, To all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God is a missionary God, on mission, and God brought us into his family so that we can invite others into God's missionary family. Family on mission. Let's look at, uh, once again at Luke uh, 14, 12 through 14 to expand our understanding of church's family. I want to read this again. I think the passage is, is up on the screen. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now this is in a, a part of the Gospel of Luke that has a number of parables. And Jesus, even in the, these few verses, was speaking in a parable. This idea of a, a banquet, a dinner, a family dinner actually. Uh, and who you should invite and who you shouldn't invite and why you should invite them, why you shouldn't invite them. And most parables actually have one main point. Uh, However, I actually have three points that I want to actually mention here. Three things that I, that I just think we find in this passage. First, we see that God's family is defined by who sits at the table. God's family is defined by who sits at the table. You know, at the Franklin Avenue campus last Sunday, Joel pointed out that the ministry of Jesus did not revolve around a pulpit. There were times in the, in, the, uh, in the synagogue where Jesus stood possibly behind a pulpit, but his, his ministry didn't really revolve around a pulpit. The ministry of Jesus actually revolved around a table. A table where he actually invited people in. And he cared for those people that sat around his table. In fact, what we find in Luke chapter 14 is that the Pharisee invited Jesus to a table and Jesus actually cared about those who weren't invited to that table. Because Jesus was actually concerned about companionship and relationship and what it means to actually sit around the table. Um, the Middle Eastern cultural concept of companionship either revolved around a journey or it revolved around a shared meal. You would go on a journey with someone as a companion or you would sit around at a table as a companion. In fact, the, the word companion in our English, it actually comes from two Latin words. I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but I'll share it with you. First is the word com, C-O-M, which is the word with. And then the second word is the word paris, or panis, panis. And um, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. There's a restaurant somewhere in Beaver County called Panera. Do you know what Panera means? Panera is a bread box. <laughs> it's a bread box. But that word Panera actually comes from this Latin word, panis, which means bread. Literally, the word companion itself means with bread. When we take bread with each other, when we share bread with each other, is it any wonder that some of that Jesus' most intimate time with his disciples was around the Last Supper? And one of the most intimate aspects of that Last Supper was that moment where Jesus actually lifted bread 
and he broke the bread and he compared it to his body which would be broken for them and then he took a cup a cup filled with wine and he compared that cup as he prayed over that cup he compared it to his own blood which would be shed for them and the communion meal is a beautiful example for us as a church of, of how we actually enter into and have entered into companionship with Jesus. Now, we do a nip and a sip. And uh, there's probably, I'm going to say there's nothing wrong with a nip and a sip. But what if we could actually just share a love feast with each other in companionship, in love, in his presence. Now, there's a lot of churches today that what they do is they just say, well, let's just have a meal together. And you just have a meal together and there's no thought of bringing it to the cross of Christ. So I'm not saying go the other side of just share meals together. But what if we, what if we took those meals that we shared and we brought them to the person and the work of Jesus? Because ultimately, ultimately, that is the family meal. That is the companionship. That is bringing someone into family. Family consists of those who share values, those who share space, and those who share meals. Um, consistently, sociologists point to the breakdown of the American family as being rooted in a breakdown of shared values, not spending time together, and not sharing meals together. In the Gospels, Jesus ate with his followers and shared common meals, creating family. Family is who you invite around the table. Church family consists of who you have invited around the table. Second in this passage, we see that family is those you want to be there. Now, I'm going to do a little play on words with you, if that's okay, so... Hopefully you'll catch where I'm going with this. But Jesus turned the ideas of wants and desires and motives on their head in front of this man who was a prominent Pharisee. Because the prominent Pharisee invited Jesus to a meal for what he could gain from Jesus. But in verses 12 through 14, Jesus turns that on its head and says it's not about inviting the ones that you want something from. It's about inviting the ones that you can give to. See, we, we typically view the idea of want as something tangible that we receive. The want of the Pharisee who invited Jesus to his house was to receive the honor of having Jesus in his house. It was his want to receive. Jesus challenges that by saying, don't invite people based upon a motive to receive from those who can give. Instead, invite those who can only receive. Now, here's a beautiful thing that my wife and I discovered in Baltimore, and I'll share a few stories in, in a few minutes. But in those moments, we received. But it wasn't our motive. It actually was the fruit of it. It wasn't our motive. It wasn't our reason. So Jesus challenges that by saying, no, don't invite those who can give to you. Instead, invite those who have no ability to give. Your motive is not the motive to receive. Instead, your motive is the, the desire to give. Don't just invite to your table those who you can receive from. Invite to your table those who can give you nothing but their presence. Church, that concept is in our value statement. Can we put the value statement of family on mission uh, up on the screen again? That one slide. We are a Christ-centered, spirit-empowered family on mission. We exist for our neighbors and the nations. And our prayer is that we would welcome, to, uh, welcome the people nobody else wants. And then third, 
The implication of Jesus' words are that his want for his family is for us to want those that nobody else wants. See, Jesus, in telling this story, is actually telling what's actually on the heart of the Father and what's on the heart of the Son and what's on the heart of the Holy Spirit is to actually invite people in who would not normally be invited. And when we touch by our actions and our motives and our practices and our very way of life, the heart of the Father, that is the place where there's blessing. Um, my, uh, my wife and I, before uh, we moved to uh, North Carolina, uh, we were part of a, a church plant that we started in Baltimore. And um, I shared a little bits and pieces of this back in December, but, but not a whole lot. We, we started this uh, missional community, we called it Church in the Park, where we went to a park every Sunday morning, rain or shine. Uh, we had crazy weather miracles. We had miracles where it's pouring rain and flooding on the way to Church in the Park. And people are calling me, are we doing Church in the Park? I'm like, you know our policy. We go rain or shine, so take a raincoat. We pull up in our cars, and the rain stops. And I actually, I, I don't know where it is now, but I used to actually have a video where we're standing in the park, and you can actually see the clouds. You can see the rain falling all around this park. And then with the, my phone, I go up, and you can actually see the blue skies through the trees in the park. Like, God did crazy, crazy miracles in this park. Well, this park actually happened to be a place where uh, a lot of the homeless and drug addicts and uh, gangs, um, strippers, prostitutes, women of the night would actually hang out in this park. And the reason they would hang out there is because churches would come and pass out food. And so it was kind of like a, a clearinghouse for charity for the people in need in the inner city of Baltimore. And um, when I first decided to go and do this ministry called Church in the Park, um, I had three guys, and, and one of the guys said, hey, there's, I see these homeless people standing on a street corner. Would it, wouldn't it be cool for us to go, like, pass out food? And we're all like, yeah, that sounds great. And then I find out that he actually was homeless. He himself was homeless in L.A. And uh, I'm not questioning a lot of the issues of homeless in L.A., but his story was that it wasn't that big of a deal for him personally to be homeless in LA. He just went out there for a job, lost the job, and said, hey, I'm going to hang out in the sunshine for six months. So he lived out of his car. But what it did was it, it connected him with people that he would not normally have been connected with that created in him a heart for this particular demographic. So we just thought it would be a cool thing to do. And I thought it would be a one-time shot. Check that off. Let's go on to the mission of God and what he really is calling us to do to take over Baltimore with Jesus, you know. So about the fourth or fifth week into this, I'm standing on the street corner and I watch these ministries that would come, uh, to, uh, come to this park. They would open their, this is not negative in any way, but they would open their doors, they would pass out food, they would close their doors and they would leave. And literally I heard the Lord say to me, I'm not calling you to pass out food and leave, I'm calling you to pass out food and stay. And we began to build a relationship with these homeless people in the inner city of Baltimore. That was just, today, some of my closest uh, friends are people that we, we know from Baltimore through what we did there in this park. Um, about 10 weeks into that, uh, 2009, uh, I invited a, a number of homeless people to come uh, to McDonald's because we wanted to ask them this question. What would it look like if we did church for you? And so we've got eight or nine of these homeless guys that are in this, uh, in McDonald's. We're sitting across them. And we said, now what would it look like if we were to do church for you on Sunday morning? And they're like, why would you want to do that? And we said, well, um, it's a good question. Um, we feel like the Lord loves you and he's put a love for you in our hearts. And so what would it look like if we could do something like that? And I remember the one gentleman, his name was James. He says, are you for real? 
<laughs> and I said, well, I don't know if we're for real. It's just something that we've been thinking about. And so right there in that McDonald's, we determined what church would look like for this homeless encampment in this park in, in downtown Baltimore. And so I want to I actually tell you a, a few stories about, about my family in Baltimore and the people that I love. And so uh, there was a, uh, right at the very beginning in 2009, there was this uh, woman named Sissy. And uh, one time she told me uh, her full name, and then she looked at me with a smile and says, and that's why I go by Sissy. So uh, she, uh, she, when I met her, she was probably one of the roughest people I'd ever met. She would go through the line and swear at people and grab as many donuts as she could and as much coffee and she was like don't touch that donuts that's mine and um and we took sissy aside one one sunday and we just said you know sissy that's not really how we want to kind of live our life around here and and so we began to pray for her and, and literally demons left screaming from from sissy i share about sissy because uh about maybe like five years ago, Sissy actually passed away. And so for me, this is actually sharing a, a memorial. This is almost like a memorial service for me to bring you into, into this story. But Sissy became one of the, now she was rough around the edges, but she came, became one of the sweetest women uh, that you would ever want to know. Her story was that when she was a, a teenager, uh, uh, her, she had a, a two two boys, and as the boys grew up, one of them was actually shot on the streets of Baltimore and died. Her other son did a revenge killing on the boy on the man that killed her first son, and so her son was actually in prison for life. She also had a, a situ situation where she she had a baby that was born and the baby died while she was on the streets, living on the streets of, of Baltimore. So she had a really, really, really rough life. But what happened is Marilyn and I began to do life with Sissy. As we invited her into family, as we invited her into connection, we saw in front of our very eyes a transformation of Sissy to the point where if you knew her when I first met her and you knew her just before she passed away, it's a totally different, totally different person. But it was someone that we just invited in. We invited into our life. Um, she used to call Meryl Mama. So you would hear across the park, Mama! And then she would call me Pastor. And she would say, this my pastor. And she would give me a huge hug uh, every time. Sissy became the coffee lady. She would actually come out to the, to uh, her, her job. Her job was coffee. We didn't pay her. But she said, I'm here for, I'm here to work. I hope I'm on time. And then one day I, uh, she came out. She said, Pastor, I got another job. And I'm like, oh, you got another job. Like, well, that's awesome. And she says, uh, but it's just like you. I don't work for money. I work for the blessings that God gives me. <laughs> as I uh, work at this homeless shelter, passing out uh, food to all the people that I used to know when I was in the homeless shelter. And one day we actually uh, had a banquet that we were invited to, and, and um, Sissy didn't know this, but we, she was going to be celebrated at this banquet, and so we took her out to buy her this beautiful dress, and we got her all fixed up, and she's sitting uh, in, at the table with us at this banquet. And the person who was uh, doing the banquet stood up and said, there's someone here in our midst that we just want to honor. We want to honor Sissy. And literally, she's looking around like, who's the Sissy that they want to honor? <laughs> and then I remember when she went into the hospital and we went in to see her. And um, she was giving the, the nurses a, a hard time because they, they just didn't, weren't treating her the way that we would treat her. And we said, Sissy, it's, it's okay. It's going to be okay. You, you need to listen what the nurses have to say. And um, it was soon after that. You know, Baltimore is, a, is an interesting network of relationships where 
things uh, things happen and you don't know why they happen and you don't fully understand it but you just pray and you ask God for the grace to understand but we actually found out probably two weeks after she passed away that she had passed away and uh, they had already had the funeral and, and um, you know just her family didn't necessarily think to reach out to us to let us know that, that Sissy had passed away but at our table in Baltimore there was an absence there was a member of our family that wasn't there anymore also was a young uh, uh, well a man my age his name was Kareem he uh his name was Kareem because when he was in prison, he uh, took what is known as the Shahada, where you actually claim your allegiance to Islam. He was standing outside the park, and he would stand there, and he would watch what we would do, and he wouldn't come into the park. But Merrill saw him one day standing uh, outside the park and went out and said, and he said, hey, do you have any gloves? Because my hands are freezing. So Merrill took her small, thin gloves and handed them to, to Kareem. And and they wouldn't fit, but he was just so touched by this, this act, this act of generosity. And we began to have a, a conversation with, with Kareem. We found out that he actually was shot and left for dead on the streets of Baltimore. That he was really, um, uh, and, and he, he cried out, you know, God save me, Jesus save me, Jesus save me. But then for somehow, some reason, as he got caught up in a lot of different things, he, he went to prison and he became a, a Muslim. And we said to him, he said, you know, you cried out that Jesus would save you, and yet in prison you took your shahada. What's that all about? And he goes, yeah, that's what I'm confused about. I know that Jesus saved me, but when I was in prison, I was encouraged to take my shahada. And so... He says to us, you know what my real name is? My real name is Carlisle. Why don't you call me Carlisle? And so right there on that street corner with Merrill's gloves that wouldn't fit his hand, Carlisle gave his life to Christ. He then wanted to be baptized. I'm going to share this. Don't share this with the DS because we didn't dunk him because we didn't have anywhere to dunk him. It was the middle of the winter. So we got this kiddie pool. We set it up in this house where we, were, where we would do house church. And he was kneeling in this pool, and we just started pouring water on him. And we poured all the water we had, and then here's what he said, more water, pour more water, pour more water. So we went and got more water, and we poured more water on him. And uh, he's part of, our, part of our family. He's, he's like, he was a brother. We invited him to Thanksgiving. Because Marilyn and, my, uh, and I, what we would do is we would say, if there's anyone that doesn't have a place to be on Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter, you can come to our house. And so we had a big Thanksgiving dinner, and Meryl made stovetop stuffing. Stovetop stuffing. And Carlisle said, Miss Meryl, this is the best stuffing. I've never had better stuffing than this stuffing. And so, for like weeks after, they said, Miss Merrill, when are you going to make some more of that award-winning stuffing? Uh, Carlisle uh, eventually, you know, just because it's a struggle. It's a struggle to be on the streets. It's a struggle to go through that. It's a struggle to live that life. And uh, eventually, he developed uh, COPD. And, um, and then I got a call that uh, he went to sleep without his oxygen, and he died in his sleep. And so we got to be at his funeral and got to speak at, at his funeral and just share to all of his family stories that they didn't even fully know about the change that had happened in Carlisle. Another friend of mine, his name is Dave. Um, Dave came into the park with his stomach completely extended and uh, we started talking to him. He could barely stand and he had uh, hepatitis C and, and they told him that he needed a liver transplant or he would die. And so we prayed for Dave in the park and as we're praying for him and I do not make this up and you guys have seen miracles but as we prayed for him his stomach shrunk and he became overcome by the spirit and he says I don't know what you guys are doing I don't know who you are but something's going on with me I need to sit down and we began to share with him about the God that had actually touched him 
and Dave Harlow gave his life to Christ. Dave was still on um, methadone because methadone is one of the issues that they face in Baltimore. It's one of the, the deep struggles. It's not just heroin. It's the way that you get off heroin. That's a struggle in, in the city of, of Baltimore. And so he, he got really sick. Uh, they took him into the hospital, and the doctor told him, well, we need to take you off methadone. Well, getting him off methadone was part of the equation, certainly, but there was nothing that he knew to take away his pain, his struggles, anything like that. And so he had not, literally had not done drugs in probably 20 years. He was standing uh, in his bedroom looking out on the street. We know this because his roommate told us this. His roommate Joe told us this. And he's looking down and uh, he sees a drug transaction happening on the streets of Baltimore. And he goes down and takes those drugs and he died that night in his sleep. Is a part of my family. Is my brother. He was my friend. It's family on mission. It's what we do because that's what God does. It's what we're about because that's what God is about. It's about love. In the beginning, before the beginning, there was the lover, there was the beloved, there was the flame of love. And he created out of love. Everything we see is a kiss of love from the Father. All of creation, you as well. And he created you so that he can love you. That's why you were created. In, in Baltimore, we would ask this question of people on the streets, uh, just, do you know why God created you? And they'd say, I had no idea. we say, what if I told you that God created you so that he could love you? And they're like, that's beautiful, but that's so hard to believe. And I would say, you know why that's hard to believe? Because there actually is an enemy of your soul who spends every moment trying to convince you that that's a lie. But I'm here to tell you that's the truth. That God created you, the lover created you to be loved. And if he created you to be loved, he created your next-door neighbor to be loved. And he created their family to be loved. And he, he, in the midst of all the struggles, in the midst of the work of the enemy to convince the world that God doesn't love us, there are stories of family <laughs> where we know from the demonstration of God's love from us to others that love is real and love is of God. So, Father, I just, uh, I just pray, God, that we would once again give thought to this reality of what it looks like to be a family on mission. What it looks like to be those who are not in it for ourselves, but we're in it for what we can give because, Jesus, you were the great giver. Father, you were the great giver. You are the great giver. Jesus, you gave your life. Father, you gave your Son. And you give the Holy Spirit to us. A down payment of the heavenly reality that's represented by the kingdom of God now. And so, Lord, I ask you even, even now to check our motives. What's our motive for having someone around our table? What's our motive for inviting someone in? And Lord, if our motive's not pure, would you purify our motives again? Would you make us to look more and more and more and more like Jesus?
that we would embrace you, Jesus, in all your rhythms and all your ways and all your words and all your commands and all your instruction and all your teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if this works. Okay. Um, when uh, David was speaking, I just kept hearing uh, these stories do not return void. And um, what I think that means is many times when we extend ourselves to others who are not like us for the sake of Jesus, sometimes we have expectations that don't really play out like how we think they're going to play out. And um, I just think when we do that, there's always this risk. We are being vulnerable and we are stepping out. And the stories don't return void because in all three of the stories that David shared, the people in which they spoke to and loved, their lives were completely changed. And I think so often when we want to reach out to the poor, we don't realize that many don't see any type of light. And to be able to step out, for them just to receive something is way better than the reality before that. And for them, you know, they came to Jesus. And the story doesn't return void for us because it is quite obvious how David and Meryl's life was completely changed by those three individuals. And um, it doesn't return void for Jesus because he's reunited with his sons and daughters. Um, by just through um, David and Meryl's surrender to Jesus to be a vessel. And so I just think that is a just beautiful story of what it looks like to step out and be a family on mission. So thanks for sharing the stories. And so let's just, uh, if the prayer ministers can come up, um, if you would like to receive prayer, um, you know, I'm just thinking as we step out in this family on mission, we can't give away if, we're, if we have nothing to give. So if you just need to be poured into in some way, um, emotionally or physically, please come up for prayer. We would love to pray for you. So Heavenly Father, we just love you. We thank you that God, in every time that we surrender to your love and step out, we thank you that, Lord, people's lives are changed and so are ours, Lord. We just thank you that you are obedient to meet us in mission and to meet us in our surrender, Lord. And we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.